Oh, Father, we come before you today, not only individually, but as a group, as a body. And Father, we come because we are sinners. We come because we are immature. We come because we are weak. We come because there are things that we are ignorant of. We come because we cannot figure things out. We get easily distracted, easily confused. And that last song we sang about turning our eyes to you, uh, Lord, we just fail to do that. We get so easily distracted by things that are going on in the world and we don't look at everything through the eyes of Jesus. We don't look at our own sin and our own life and our own struggles through the eyes of Jesus as we should. And when we watch the news and see what's going on in the world, we act as though everything is dependent upon us. We act as though everything is just spinning out of control when you are the one who is ruling over the world. And there are certain things you have planned and certain things that you have prophesied. And we need to look at everything through your eyes. We even need to look at other people through your eyes. There are some people that we look at and we... We just assume they'll never trust Christ, they'll never be saved, and they may be the next one you draw to yourself. And we think about people that uh, the way that they live, they'll never change, and yet you change all of us by your grace when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think about in John 1 that we've been studying, where it says, He came into His own, and His own did not receive Him. And I think about that, how preposterous that seems it seems as though if anybody on earth would receive you it would be the people that lived in the nation of Israel but they didn't most of them and then the next verse says but to as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God and that's us as we put our faith and trust, surrender to you, and trust in you as our only hope of salvation, the full payment for our sins, and yet you save people like us, sinners like us, failures like us. And we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. So Lord, our prayer today is that you would meet the deepest need that we have, not the need that we feel, not the need that we assume that we have, but the need that you know is the deepest in our heart. Please do that today and do it for your glory and build our faith and strengthen us. We pray that you would take this time that we look at your word and we pray we would receive it, we would believe it, we would act upon it, and we would treasure it. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us so that our lives are changed, so that our witness is strengthened, and so that other people can see Jesus in us. Give us the privilege, Lord, to really worship you through your word today. And not only us, but we pray for all of the churches that are gathered all around us today, all around the world. Bless them and bring revival and spiritual awakening. Please bless the churches that are persecuted today and those people that are in prison because of their faith in Christ we remember them we pray that you would heal sick people we pray that you would comfort grieving people and we pray that you would assure those of us who may be a little bit shaky this morning and put us on that firm foundation of Jesus Christ so Lord we dedicate this time to you speak to us through your word for it's in Jesus name we pray amen Let's uh, take our Bibles and let's turn to the Gospel of John. And we are 
in uh, chapter 1. And uh, we've been going through this and we saw the prologue where the Apostle John tells us what he's going to do. He tells us in advance that the uh, Word was with God, the Word was God. And then we wonder, well, who is the Word? Then he tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. And he tells us, as I said when I was praying, that he came to his own, this Word, meaning Jesus, and his own did not receive him. But, good news, as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the right, the authority to become the children of God. And that's the good news. Then after that, he goes into the story of Jesus bursting onto the scene, not in a way that you might have expected. This is not a Las Vegas showroom. It's not a world premiere. It's not anything like that at all. He comes to a desert in Judea where there's a river called the Jordan River. And there's a man that is in the river that is saying, I've been sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And you need to repent and be ready for his coming because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was actually baptizing people. And that was normally something you only did for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. But this man is calling upon Jews to go through that just as if they are sinners just as much as the Gentiles and they need to be cleansed. Now this man's name is John the Baptist or the baptizer and he is the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ as it is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. There'd be one that would come before the Messiah who is Jesus and uh, we have been talking about him and as we uh, pick up in uh, verse 29 of chapter 1 okay we're talking about Jesus reveals himself and we're going to put the word again because he is always doing that in fact if Jesus doesn't reveal himself you'll never find him you'll never recognize him you would be like the crowds of people who just walk right past him and didn't see anything special about him he has to be revealed he's not found or discovered but he is revealed and so when we look at verse 29, it says, The next day, this is day number two of the revealing of Christ. The next day, John, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who... Uh, is preferred before me for he was before me that's a strange statement isn't it we'll talk about that in a minute and he says in verse 31 I did not know him but that he would be revealed to Israel and there's that word revealed again not discovered but revealed you have to have your eyes open therefore I came baptizing with water look at verse 32 and John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and testified that this is 
the Son of God. And again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. John the Baptist had disciples too. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He said that to the two disciples. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, uh, said to them, What do you seek? What is it that you want? In other words. And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. Now, you look at this particular story that we see about John the Baptist, and he's got just hordes of people all around him coming to be baptized, coming to hear him. Uh, he causes a stir in Jerusalem. They even send an investigative team to try to check him out. I mean, he's riding high on the wave of popularity, which is what so many people want. And yet, he points to Jesus. He points away from himself. At one point, John the Baptist is going to say, I must decrease, he must increase. And that was the whole life motto for John the Baptist. Everything pointed to Jesus, even to the point that when he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he doesn't point to himself, he points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He does this more than once. In fact, he does it at one point so that two of his own disciples, they actually go and they follow Jesus, and they become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. John was never in this for his own ego. John was never in this to make himself to be something that he was not, or bigger than life, or bigger than uh, anything that has ever come to Israel. He's not puffing himself up, or promoting himself, or trying to get a, an interview, or to be on television, or raise tons of funds, or anything like that. He has this one purpose, and that is simply to be the forerunner of the Messiah, to uh, alert people to the coming of the kingdom of God, and then to put all of the attention upon Christ. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Um, when we read this kind of story, you have to be impressed with somebody like that who is not building themselves up or puffing themselves up or promoting themselves, but is simply pointing everybody to Jesus. And this is part of the way that Jesus was revealing himself to Israel. Now, most of the people in the nation of Israel are not going to believe John, and they're not going to believe Jesus either. And uh, that's a very sad thing. He came into his own, the Bible says, and his own received him not. And uh, again, the good news is that some did. And that people like us, Gentiles, surprisingly, we did receive him. And uh, not all of us, but some of us did. We mostly here are Gentile today, I'm going to assume. And uh, here we are thinking about something that was an obscure situation. Uh, I don't know everything that happened when all of this was written. I don't know what Caesar was doing, for example. I don't have any idea what uh, the governor or the king that uh, was ruling over Israel, Herod, I don't have any idea what he was doing or what he said, but I know about this man 
named John the Baptizer who wore a camel's hair garment and a leather belt and he ate locusts and wild honey. I have no idea what Pontius Pilate ate for breakfast that day. I have no idea what Herod ate for breakfast. I have no idea what Caesar ate. I have no idea what they were doing or what they were wearing. But I know about this guy named John. And John the baptizer. We know about him, that he was the son of a priest in the temple. Well, what is he doing out in the desert? And what is he doing out in the water baptizing people? He could have had a, a very cushy life in the temple following in his father's footsteps because he would be the one who would inherit that position. What is he doing out here and why do we care and why do we even know about him? And he points to a man named Jesus. Well, there were lots of people named Jesus back in those days. Jewish mothers would name their son Yeshua, Jesus in English, and they would do that with the hopes this will be the Messiah. This will be the one who will deliver Israel. This will be the one that will get rid of the Romans. This will be the one that will sit on the throne of King David, the great king that Israel had had in times past. And so there were a lot of them. How come I know about this particular Jesus and not all of the other ones? Why, why do we know so much about this 2,000 years later? And I submit to you the reason we do that is because the Bible is the Word of God. John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus were sent by God on a particular mission. And John the Baptist is a part of God's plan to reveal Jesus to people who would walk right past him and never even notice him, and that the mission of Jesus is to do more than be a moral leader or an example or a teacher or a rabbi or anything like that. He is, interesting language, the Lamb of God that takes away sin. Now, to us as Gentiles, we may just kind of have that room right over our heads. But to all of the Jews who were listening to John the Baptist, they would get it. They knew the symbolism because way back when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but just before they were set free by God, they were to take an unblemished lamb from their flock and they were to kill that lamb and they were, take, they were to take the blood to the door of their house and they would put some blood on the outside on the side of the door the right side of the door and on the outside on the left side of the door and they would smear that with blood and then they would put it at the top interestingly enough when you take those two sides and the top it makes the form of a cross long before Jesus ever came the symbolism was there we are saved and redeemed and made right with God through the blood of the cross and that night when that tenth plague came over all of Egypt the death angel came over them and God said to the Jews, do this in faith because when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so there was death and destruction all over the land of Egypt except in those houses that were marked by the blood of the Lamb. And every year since then, the Jews have celebrated the feast of Passover, the night that the death angel passed over them because of the blood of the Lamb. Think about that. And so if you are not familiar with all of that, you can read about that in the book of Exodus in your Bible. And this is the picture that John the Baptist is saying. 
the true lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Anybody and everybody who will put their faith and trust in him, John said. Uh, this is the one. And so John came to proclaim Jesus and Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all who would put their faith and their trust in him. He was the true Passover lamb, not the lamb out of your flock, but the lamb that God would actually send. And so this is a really neat story to think about Jesus. This is the presentation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to a sinful, lost, darkened, mistaken, confused world. Very religious world, but they were self-righteous in all that they did. And the message was, you cannot be righteous enough. You can never attain favor with God. You have to trust in the one who was sent by God to live a perfect life that you could never live and to obey God fully and then give his life just like that Passover lamb would be the innocent lamb dying for the guilty sinners. Christ was the innocent one dying for us, taking the punishment of God, and it's the blood of Jesus that keeps us from going to hell. Not that we go to church, not that we're good people, not that we're moral, not that we try to do everything right, which we should, but we can never attain the standard that God demands. And so because of that, Christ did it for us. So we place our faith in the blood, just like those Israelis would put that blood on the doorpost of their houses, trusting that God would deliver them from the plague of death. So we have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us, applied to our hearts, and by faith we trust in Him, and so we don't have to fear death, and we don't have to fear the wrath of God. So it's an amazing thing. This is the story. And so Jesus has to be revealed. When we think about the world in which we live, we think about uh, what the Bible says about everybody that is lost. And so if you've never trusted Jesus today, this is what the Bible would have to say about you. But it's not like we're pointing our fingers and picking on you and saying, what are you doing here, you dirty sinner or anything like that? This is where we all were. And the Lord had to reveal himself to us. And he had to be the one that would find us. And then and, and the Bible says things like uh, people that are lost before they know Christ, they're dead in trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, you see some things on the screen that it talks about us. We're darkened in our understanding. Uh, the Bible talks about our lives and everything we do religiously and everything we do to try to please God is, uh, the Bible says, uh, futile, uh, empty. You know, nothing uh, that we can do like that. And all of this points to our utter hopelessness. So if you uh, think with me about being dead in trespasses and sins, it means that we're spiritually dead. We're born spiritually dead. We don't have that connecting link between us and God. And so uh, we couldn't get to Him. There's no ladder that you can climb. There's no stairway to heaven that you can ascend to. This is... Uh, showing our total inability. What can a dead man do to please God? What can a dead man do to achieve salvation? Dead men don't do anything. They just lay there. 
And you can take a dead person and you can take uh, somebody that just loved pizza and you can go to Hideaway and get the best pizza that they have and wave it in front of a dead man and he won't give any response at all because he is incapable. All of this points to the fact that we have a total inability to get to God. We cannot make ourselves acceptable. We can't please God. We can't obey God. We can't do any of that. It's all tainted by our sin. And so when we... uh, think about all of these things we go well then what's the hope and how in the world does anything happen and that's what this story that we're talking is all about where we couldn't get to God God came to us now think about that all the religions in the world are all telling you how you how a human being can get to God you got to improve your life you've got to better your life you've got to change your life you've got to do all add these things to your life take certain things away from your life but the problem is that's kind of like going to the uh, coast of California on one of those big cliffs and trying to jump across the Pacific Ocean you just cannot do it because dead men cannot clean their lives up and become pleasing to God so God solved the problem in a most amazing way he came to earth and Jesus Christ put on flesh God in human flesh came to earth and he actually lived the life that you and I could not live so that when he went to the cross and died that was more than just a political statement that was more than just a cultural statement that was more than just an example of how to live and die and be committed to your cause as some people say that was God giving his own life for us that was God in human flesh being nailed to a cross so that God the Father could take all of his wrath toward the sins of those who would believe putting it on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ bearing it and as the Lamb of God his blood cleanses us from all of our sin and so this has to be revealed unto us as it says in uh, verse 31 the word revealed the new testament was written in greek and so we go back and we look and say what did the greek word there mean that uh, uh, john used and it means actually manifested revealed to make visible and to clarify That's what had to happen because as a sinner, you would get it all wrong. You'll mess it up, you'll twist it, you'll misunderstand it, and you'll never get it quite right. But Jesus came to make everything about salvation clear, to make it all clear. How do we please God the Father? How do we become acceptable to God? And it's only by trusting in the Lamb that God sent And you can't find it, you can't discover it, you don't stumble on it. He comes to you and he reveals himself to you, just as he did in this story in this first chapter. So let's talk about some things and we'll put them in points so that we can kind of break it up into pieces. And uh, the first thing, how does God reveal himself? How does Jesus reveal himself to us? Well, the first thing I think that we need to know is he And we could say it like this, always initiates it. 
And so this is not a case of I was stumbling along, trying real hard, trying my best, and God said, oh, bless your little heart. You, you know, you tried. You tried. Let me, let me help you out a little bit. God did not come to help us out a little bit. He came to make things perfectly clear, and he is the one who initiated it. In fact, even in this story, if you'll note the scripture that we read in verse 29, the first part, the next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus, and what was Jesus doing? coming toward him in other words if jesus were not coming toward john the baptist this story never would have taken place john never would have made that pronouncement everything goes back to god and it always goes back to jesus and so jesus is the one who initiates all of this jesus coming toward him and we find that through the the bible this is a pattern of god i'll just give you two examples in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned from God, against God, the Bible says that they went and they didn't run to God. See, if you uh, were like a lot of people think that we are toward God, Adam and Eve would have eaten the fruit, whatever it might have been. And they go, oh, no, we've sinned. We've got to run to God. We've got to go to God. We've got to be forgiven. Oh, Lord, forgive us. We open ourselves up. We have sinned against you. We have disobeyed you. Please forgive us. But they didn't. Like all of us, what did they try to do? They tried to cover it up. And so they covered themselves in fig leaves and then they hid. You say, well, why did they cover themselves in fig leaves and still hide? Can you imagine what a fig leaf garment would do? And how little it would cover? And how inadequate it would be? And so they did the best they could do, the best they knew how to do. And then they looked at themselves and they said, oh my goodness, I can't be in public like this. And then Adam said, the Lord's coming, hide. And that's what sinners always try to do. We try to do it ourselves. We try to cover ourselves. We try to justify ourselves. We try to make ourselves look acceptable. And then we cover up, we hide. And when the Lord came to walk with them, to fellowship with them in the cool of the day, as he did, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Or let's understand it this way. They tried to hide themselves. This is from their perspective. They were hiding. And the Lord God came among the trees of the garden, and the Lord called to him, to Adam, and said to him, Where are you? As if he didn't know. He's an all-knowing God. He knew exactly where Adam is. He knows where you are. He knows what you're hiding behind. He knows what the fig leaves of your life are are right now you see you may be addicted to pornography and you may have a secret life somewhere and then you put on the fig leaf of coming to church you put on the fig leaf of being nice to your wife to cover it all up you may be having an affair you may be addicted to drugs or alcohol but you can't let everything that is in you come out so you put on the fig leaves of acceptability and you put on the fig leaves of hiding what you were doing so that nobody knows about it, thinking that you're okay. But your conscience is killing you this morning and your, stole, your soul is sick and stirred up and you are disgusted with yourself. And I'm 
here to tell you today there's only one solution to that and that is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the only hope that we have. But praise God, it is the hope that we have because Jesus not only does that, but he has the power to forgive sins and he's the one like God did in the Garden of Eden that comes after you. He's the one that comes after you like he did after Adam. It's in his nature to seek and to save the lost. The Bible is very clear. We don't seek after God, but he seeks after us. What an amazing God that we serve. What an amazing gospel. What good news that we have that he would do that. Even when God would speak to the prophets in the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. I mean, listen to what this says. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. Jeremiah didn't discover it. He didn't think it up. He didn't find it. He didn't discover it. He didn't interpret it. He didn't write it down just simply on his own initiative. The word of God came to him. And this is the way it always works. If you're a believer today in Jesus Christ in the gospel, the gospel came to you. You didn't find the gospel. It was God who worked in your life. It was God who sought you like the parables of the Shepherds seeking the lost sheep. That's the way God works. And so this is what's happening. Jesus is revealing himself to John the Baptist and to John's disciples and to the nation of Israel and to the world through this particular gospel of John, right? And that's why when it says they called him rabbi being interpreted, you know, it says that. Why did he say that? Because this gospel is written to more than just Jews and Gentiles wouldn't understand that word. So John interprets it for him. And he does that several times in this book, telling us that his audience is more than just the Jews in Israel. This is a book for everybody in the world. This is a book for us so that we can understand it. Okay, number two. There's something else that happens here as we see this story about John the Baptist as he begins describing Jesus. Now again... Lots of people were named Jesus or Yeshua. Lots of people. And Jewish women, when they would have a boy, a baby boy, they would oftentimes name him that particular name in hopes that this might be the one that God promised to send. So here's what we need, some clarification. Lots of people in John the Baptist's day would say, Who are you? My name is Yeshua. Oh, really? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that is promised of God? And sadly, no, they were sinners like all of us, completely inadequate, didn't fulfill the prophecies that God had given. But one did, and that is Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, and he is the one that was sent by God. But we got to be clear. And notice how John put it, if you uh, look at your Bible and look at the last part of verse 21 or 29, uh, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the only Jesus that is qualified to be the Messiah is the one who can take away sins. And not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of Americans, the sins of the British, the sins of people from Africa, the sins of people in South America, wherever they may be. This is a Savior that can take away the sins of anybody, anywhere, in the world, at any 
given time. And John goes on to say, if you're going to trust somebody, trust the one who can take away your sin. Don't trust Joe down the street. Don't trust anybody else. Trust the one who actually can deal with your sin because that's what separates you from God. And uh, John goes on to say, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. Now we need to look at that because in the Jewish culture, those who were older outranked all of the ones who were younger. And yet John the Baptist says, there's someone coming after me. And by that, could be chronologically he's six months younger than I am I outrank him it could be that he's saying that uh, look I was out here ministering before he ever showed up I had the crowds of people coming and I had attention from Jerusalem before this guy ever came in uh, both chronology and in ministry Jesus came after John and yet John says something that would be a riddle to all of those people and yet he is before me and he is preferred before me he outranks me and he existed before I did so if you're going to trust somebody to take away your sin you had better trust somebody who is eternal and not just a finite person you better trust somebody who is God in human flesh and not just somebody who is just as messed up as you are if not worse and so John the Baptist gives a doctrinal statement about Jesus the Jesus of the Bible the Jesus that fulfills prophecy the Jesus that existed before he was ever born the Jesus who is equal with God because he is God this is the God man the unblemished lamb of God who truly is unblemished from the inside out and that God can accept his sacrifice on our behalf and John said here I am I'm getting all this attention and I baptize but all I've got to baptize with is water this one who comes after me this lamb of God he actually baptizes with of all things the Holy Spirit he can take you and immerse you in the Holy Spirit of God and make you a brand new creature cleansed from all of your sin, a new creature in Christ, giving you a new beginning, giving you eternal life, and he can uh, prepare a place for you in heaven, and he can fill your life so that you have his power to deal with everything that you have to deal with on this sinful earth, all of the problems, all of the trials, all of the frustrations, all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the shame. It all can be dealt with because you now have the life of Christ. You've been immersed in it and so as we think about this this separates Jesus Christ from anybody and everybody else because some people were fakes and frauds and imposters who claimed to be the Messiah for the money that they could get they claimed to be the Messiah for the fame that they could amass for the political power that they might gain and some people mistakenly thought they were the Messiah because their mama told them they were and everybody believes their mama but they were woefully inadequate because they were not God and they did not have the power of God and they could not bear the wrath of God. I used to sing a song that said, I should have been crucified. And then as I came to understand the gospel, I understood this. It would have done me no good at all to hang on a cross. I would have hung on a cross, suffered, and I would have died and gone straight to hell. I needed a substitute to die for me on the cross to take care of my sins. And the message of the gospel is, you and I can't do it. But God sent his son 
to do it for us so that we might be free from all of this. But you've got to trust in the right Jesus. This lamb that was slain, this one that comes after John and yet at the same time is before him, outranks John the Baptist and the pre-existent Son of God. And number three, notice that Jesus reveals himself by sending witnesses. The very first thing we read in verse 32, and John bore witness. And then he tells what he saw. And that's really all the witness is. It's like being called into a courtroom. Did you see that they take me to a courtroom? Raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Yes, I do. Okay, what did you see? Did you see the murder? Did you see the accident? Did you see this? And I can't testify about what I didn't see. I just simply testify about what I see and what I know about the situation. That's the word here that John bore witness. And then he tells us, like a witness in a courtroom, what he saw. This person came, and I didn't know him. Now, that's strange because John and Jesus were cousins. Okay? Well, how come they didn't know each other? Well, keep in mind, this was a day when they couldn't travel very well. They didn't have communication. They didn't have pictures. They didn't have FaceTime. They didn't have instant message or any of those kind of things. And so uh, trips from Nazareth down to where John was raised would have been very few and far between. And uh, there were times when maybe they were busy. They didn't see each other. And uh, I have cousins. I have cousins that I know their names. But I don't think I would know them if they walked up and said hi to me until they introduced themselves. Because we're not all that close. We don't see each other all that often. And it's been a long time since I've seen them. And I don't know them now that they're old people, unlike me. Okay, And so uh, people change, don't they? And sometimes you look and you see old photographs and you pick that up and go, well, that looks just like my cousin John. Oh, that was Grandpa. John looks like Grandpa because John is old like Grandpa was in that picture, right? We change, don't we? And uh, if you were to just simply find my senior picture, I don't think you would pick that out as me. I had hair. Can you imagine? Dark hair, long hair. And all of that. You would probably go, who in the world is this? And you would be, uh, I, I would imagine with some of my grandchildren, if, if I showed them and I said, is this big G? No. You know, they would say, because people change. Well, that's the way it is with John the Baptist and Jesus. And John says here, I did not know him. But the Lord had given him instruction when you baptize this person and you see the Spirit come upon them. Now that wasn't horribly unusual. All through the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people. But you know what he always did? He came upon them and then he left. Came upon them for a certain time and then he left. And here he said, when you see the Spirit of God come upon one and remain... Remain, because Jesus was not an ordinary human. He was the God-man, and he, came, he had the Holy Spirit always upon him. And so John is witnessing now of what he saw about that time that he was with Jesus and how Jesus was revealed to him. And by the way, that's the way that you and I witness as well. We tell about what 
God has done for us. We tell about how he saved us and how he brought us out of our sin, how he took the wrath of God upon himself in our place and how we are set free because of that, because of our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea of being a witness for Christ uh, was really significant because in the days of the New Testament, it meant you were in danger of losing your life. You were in danger of dying for that. And so the Greek word for witness, martyros, became synonymous with the word martyr. In other words, you witness for Christ and you're going to die most likely. And these people that witness like the Apostle Paul and others, they gave their lives for Christ. And so you and I are martyrs, witnesses for Christ regardless of the cost. It may not cost us our life, but it will cost us, and God has commissioned us to be his witnesses throughout the world because there are people who don't know him, and we are to tell him what we have, uh, what has been revealed to us in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we kind of point to others and we say, maybe not in the same words, but we say, behold the Lamb of God. In other words, we say to people, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, our work associates, people that we go to school with, wherever we may be, hey, there's a way of salvation. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we say it maybe in different words, but that's essentially what we're saying, just like John. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth and it also says in Acts chapter 5 verse 32 and we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So we have the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the word of God, and we have the witness and the testimony of the Father himself, and uh, that's why we believe and now we become a fellow witness with the Father and with the Lord Jesus and with the prophets and the apostles and with the word of God, and we proclaim Jesus and the gospel everywhere we go. And what do we expect when that happens when Jesus reveals himself? And here's number 4. According to verse 37 through 39, something happened. He shows mercy, love, and gladness. I want to ask you a question. What do you think of when you think of God? Do you think of nothing but judgment? Do you think of nothing but condemnation? Do you think of nothing but anger and uh, wrath and all of that type of thing? Well, those things are real, and you deserve all of that. But the amazing thing is when you come to Jesus and you surrender to him as your Savior and Lord, your relationship with God changes. And you see the kindness, and you see the love, and you see the mercy of God. And we experience that as believers every single day. And so these two disciples of John the Baptist, they heard him speak and they follow him. Now, as we read down through these verses, what do we find? Jesus being annoyed by them? Jesus saying, what business do you have having anything to do with me? Hey, I know you and I know what you did last night. Get away from me. You're going to contaminate me or anything. And you don't find that at all. In fact, Jesus turns around and he says, what are you after? What are you looking for? And uh, it's a strange thing that they say, well, we want to know where you're staying. Where you say, do you think that was really the whole thing or do you 
Suppose maybe they were just a tad nervous being in the presence of Christ. And when he said, what is it that you want? The true need of their heart was salvation, cleansing, forgiveness of sin, mercy from God, a new start, a new beginning. But I kind of imagine that uh, they're caught off guard by that. And so the only thing they can say is, well, we just want to know where you're staying. And you know what? Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Jesus doesn't try to correct them. Jesus doesn't condemn them. Jesus doesn't reject them. Jesus doesn't push them away. But he basically says, okay, come on. So they come to the place where he is. And then notice what it says. They stay with him. Uh, depending on how you figure the time, the 10th hour, the 10th hour could be, if you do it uh, the Jewish way, earlier in the morning. Or if you do it the Roman way, it could be later in the day. But nonetheless, I think the point of it is Jesus spent time with them. Jesus answered their questions. Jesus talked with them. Jesus showed them some things. And these two disciples of John the Baptist later became disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we find that when we come to the Lord, he's not standing there, listen to me if you're lost. He's not standing there with a whip. He's not standing there with a ball bat. He's not standing there saying, how dare you come to me? No, he says, come to me and I'll forgive you and we can have fellowship together. Uh, there's another uh, time in the Gospel of John where the Apostle Peter, after he denied Christ, meets him on the seashore and the Lord has breakfast for him. I mean, what does that say to you? The kindness, the goodness and the mercy of of God. God is not standing saying just just one false move and I will let you have it. God is a reconciling God, a merciful God who wants to have fellowship with you, but the basis of our fellowship is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, if you've never trusted him, put your faith and trust in Christ and his shed blood for your sins. And if you are saved, quit thinking that God is evaluating you solely on the basis of your performance and you becoming worthy enough. Your worthiness is only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is always through the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood. What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? What a strange question. But he said to them, come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Isn't that great? It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, that's what we need, because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, not your performance, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You're invited into the family, in other words, in Christ Jesus, so that the Come in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Isn't that amazing? 
to think that he would do that. The kindness, the kindness of this God who hates sin but provides salvation through his own son's blood for someone like you. Now, what are you going to do with this? Well, I would suggest, number one, you probably need to repent. Repent. Quit trusting in yourself. Quit trusting in religion. Quit trusting in a feeling. Quit trusting in an experience that you had years ago. And trust in the present, present salvation that Christ gives when we put our trust in Him and Him only and we surrender our lives to the risen Lord. Then I would say you also need to rejoice. Think about this. Over 7 billion people live on the planet and about 3 billion of them, billion with a B, about 3 billion of them will never hear the name of Jesus at all. And yet you just have. Why you? Because of the kindness and the grace of God. You need to rejoice in all of that, that you have even heard this poor message today, but you got to hear it, and 3 billion people in the world will never hear anything like what you have heard and sung about today. So what are you going to do with it? Well, I would suggest you need to rethink things. Is Jesus just a historical figure or a mythical figure or something like that? Or is he the true son of God who came to you? And that's why we're talking about these obscure people in an obscure land a long time ago. Who cares? Well, it matters. And we're talking, still talking about him today and we'll be talking about him for eternity you need to rethink what you think about the lord jesus christ and then i would say you need to repent this is the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world why would the lamb be offered because sinners had to have a sacrifice you need a sacrifice and jesus is the only sacrifice that can help you or doing anything for you at all and think about how wonderful all of that is. And think about how blessed you are. And uh, then um, you need to report. You need to come to the Lord and say, I've trusted you, Lord. And there are billions of people who have never heard about you. I want to be like John the Baptist. And I want to be like the prophet Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. And I want to say to those of you who are not saved, you need to trust Jesus today as your Savior and Lord. And I want to say to those of you who are saved, you need to be like John the Baptist. And you need to go to your father and say, the fields are white, ready to be harvested. Send forth laborers into your harvest. And then be like Isaiah and say, here am I. Send me. And tell other people about Jesus. And sometimes we say, well, we've got to go all around the world and do it. Some people are called to do that, but not everybody. But have you ever noticed that here, even in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the world seems to be coming to us? You see people from other lands and other cultures speaking other languages everywhere you go. And they need to know about Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. You don't have to go to their country. You can go to them. And you can give them the gospel. And they can share the gospel with their people. They may even go back to their country and share the gospel. God has given us a unique opportunity. If only we would just be faithful to be like John the Baptist and report what we have seen, what the Lord has done for us, and to be ready to share the gospel with other people anytime, 
anywhere and under any situation. Why? Because God will use you as a part of his eternal plan to reveal himself to sinners who need to be saved just like you needed to be saved. What an honor. What a privilege it is to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've never trusted him, trust him today. There's probably somebody right around you who would tell you how to trust the Lord Jesus. You can do it right now. And uh, you can just say, I come to you, Lord, as a sinner. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And I put my trust in him alone, and I ask you to save me by your grace. You don't have to say it just like I did. You don't have to be a parrot and repeat everything that I say. But if that's your heart, pray that to him now. And uh, turn your life to Jesus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and trust in Him as your Lord and your Savior. And for saved people, you need to close this service by saying, Lord, I don't want to be the way that I am. I want to be changed. I want to love you more. And I want to proclaim you as I have opportunity in the world so that you can reveal yourself to lost, dead, blind sinners and you can do it through me. What an awesome, awesome privilege to have that opportunity to do it. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Father, we come to you because everybody in this room, saved or lost, we all know one thing. We're all inadequate. We all are sinners. And we are in the hands of a holy God who hates sin. And so, Lord, I pray that for those who have never trusted you as Lord and Savior... Holy Spirit, would you bring them under conviction? Would you draw them to the Father? Would you give them faith to believe? Would you help them understand the gospel? And I pray that they would put their faith and trust in Christ right now even as they cry out to you. And then I pray for those of us who have done that. Why are we so complacent? Why are we so silent? Why are we so apathetic about the fact that the God of the ages has died for us and revealed his son to us when billions of people all over the world will never even hear? Why us? And may we come to the realization so that like John the baptizer, we can share Jesus with other people. Help that to be a passion in our lives, to do that for your glory and to do it faithfully. Help us in that and forgive us for not doing it and fill us with the fire of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the ends of the earth any way that we can. And we pray all of this that you might draw people to yourself and that you might receive glory and worship from people who previously were blind and dead and futile and darkened in their understanding. Bring them to life, Lord. Make them your child. Bring them into the family of God and give us the privilege of being involved in their salvation and their discipleship. And we pray this, that we would do this as witnesses for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.